Well, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. If you haven't been to Zechariah in a while, it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, go back two books. Now, I know that an 18-message Christmas series is a little odd. I understand that. And we're at the week before Resurrection Sunday, and yet our study on the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament a dozen and a half times or so, I really think it helps us have a fuller and richer understanding of our Savior. We started off in Genesis, and here we are, second to last book of the Bible. Next time we'll be in the very last book, or the Old Testament rather, the last book of the Old Testament. Tonight is the second to last message in this series. The Sunday after Resurrection Sunday, in two weeks, we'll finish this with one last appearance of Christ in the Old Testament But in that final message, I'm going to go back through all of them. We're going to go through and review this at first because there's a definite progression to them that we really have to recognize. And it's something I hadn't really seen until I began studying this a few months ago. It's a stunning progression. And what it really is, is a a progression and a picture of the doctrine of progressive revelation. That God reveals himself more and more throughout scripture, more of Christ, more of his redemptive plan as scripture progresses. Now, as we've gone through these appearances of the angel of the Lord, we've identified a major purpose for each of the appearances, and tonight's purpose is going to feel a little bit more familiar to you. And you've probably noticed, and some of you have commented to me, that the closer we get to the New Testament, the more his appearances seem to fit a theme we're familiar with. Tonight's theme, tonight's purpose for the appearance of the angel of the Lord is to intercede for sinful man. To intercede for sinful man. And you already understand this important ministry of Christ. This is his ministry right now at this moment. Romans 8.34. The Apostle Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is the ministry of Christ at this very moment for you. And he's completely committed to your spiritual protection through his intercession. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is his drive. This is his passion at this moment, his intercession. 1 John 2.1, we get comfort when the Apostle John says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate. In fact, it's the same Greek word, helper, that is used to describe the Holy Spirit's role in our lives in John sixteen seven, We have a helper with the Father. We have somebody defending us with the Father. In fact, the writer of Hebrews takes the former symbol and shadow of the temple into which the high priest would enter once per year to make intercession for Israel. And he shows us the reality of the intercession of the true high priest in heaven. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So you're already familiar with the intercessory work of Christ. But what you may not know is that this has already been happening in the Old Testament. He has been interceding. And so we're going to look at Zechariah 1, and then we'll also look at chapter 3 as well. And what we'll see is that the angel of the Lord is acting as advocate, as intercessor. The role is familiar to us, but to the Jew, 
the Jew would be more thinking in terms of animal sacrifices and an earthly high priest. And we're going to see some connections made tonight. We're going to see some bridges built. In fact, what we're going to see is an earthly high priest. And we'll find out that he's just as sinful as the rest of us. And he needs an intercession as well. And so you begin to see the end of a sinful human high priesthood and the beginning of the great high priesthood of Christ. Now we also need to remember that the ministry of the angel of the Lord is very, is very much Israel-centric. It is centered on Israel. This has been the case all throughout the Old Testament in the previous 16 appearances that we've examined. It is through Israel that God will reveal Christ. It's through Israel that God will give the new covenant. And it's through Israel that Gentiles get to enjoy the goodness and the fullness of salvation. So Israel is very important. She is a huge theme in the Old Testament, and the ministry of the angel of the Lord has been primarily to Israel. So just a little scenery first to help us understand what's happening. What's happening in the book of Zechariah? Well, Zechariah comes just after many Jews have already returned from exile. He lived about the same time as the prophet Haggai, and he's writing in February of either 520 B.C. or 519 B.C., depending on how you count the years of a king, whether you count the first incomplete year as year one, or sometimes they counted only the second year as year number one. In either case, we've got it narrowed down to basically within a year. Israel is trying to rebuild, and it's going slowly. In fact, it's going badly. Haggai is encouraging the returning Jews to rebuild the temple. And while Haggai is doing that, Zechariah, the prophet, is addressing the more internal spiritual challenges of these returned exiles. He's encouraging them to repent, to renew their covenant promises with God. Why would this be important? Well, Haggai is encouraging the building of the temple, which is going to happen very shortly after Zechariah is written, But temple worship will become irrelevant once again. It would just be false religiosity if there's no repentance, if there's no true, real, internal reality of faith. And that's what got their forefathers in trouble in the first place, was a false religiosity. So the temple is going to be completed just in three or four years. So now the book of Zechariah provides spiritual preparation for true worship of God. Now, one of the main thrusts of Zechariah is to encourage the Jews that God will continue to be faithful to Israel and a a major way that he encourages them is that he proves a hope of a Messiah. Uh, Zechariah is very much the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It is filled with a glorified Messiah, particularly when you get to the last few chapters. And once again now, right from the beginning, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ coming backstage before Bethlehem as we've called this series he figures prominently in the, in the direction and the help that God gives to whom? To Israel. In this particular case, the major theme is the intercession for sinners, which the angel of the Lord provides. And this will really give us some insight into the nature of the intercessory ministry of Christ. And in fact, if you understand Zechariah 1 and 3, it really enriches your understanding of all the New Testament verses I already read to you. So I want to give us some insights into the nature of Christ's intercession. And we'll do six of them. The first insight into the intercessory ministry of Christ, Christ's intercession is fervent. It is fervent. Now we have to continue to set the stage here for a bit. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Christ's intercession is fervent. Zechariah 1 verse 7. 
On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah in a night vision. Zechariah is awake. How do we know this? He's asking questions. He's a part of this vision. The scene that he's seeing here would be very familiar to him. This is a grove of myrtle trees, which is probably a scene from the Kidron Valley just outside the city of Jerusalem. And it says it's the myrtle trees in the glen. That's just a valley. And so this would be a place that was familiar to him. Now, already, besides Zechariah, we have five characters in this scene. And so we need to differentiate who, who is here. First, we have a man riding a red horse. He is in front of the other horses. Verse 11 says the man is the angel of the Lord. So the man riding the red horse is the angel of the Lord, the physical manifestation of God, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, 520 years before his birth. Then you have an angel speaking to Zechariah in verses 9 and 14. This is not the angel of the Lord. This is a separate angel. He's the narrator of the vision to Zechariah. He's sort of the tour guide for this vision. And then you have three other characters, three horsemen riding behind the angel of the Lord on three different colored horses. So when Zechariah asks about these horses in verse 9, the narrating angel says he would show Zechariah what they are. But the way Zechariah is shown what they are is that the angel of the Lord, the the rider of the lead red horse, answers, verse 10, so the man who is standing among the myrtle trees answered, this is the angel of the Lord, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And it says here that the angel of the Lord is standing among the myrtle trees. It just means that he's not moving. He's mounted on the horse, but he's not going anywhere. So the angel of the Lord has sent these three mighty angels to patrol the earth. And what do they find? The earth remains at rest. Now you might say, oh, that's good. No, this is bad. This is bad news for two reasons. First of all, the domination of the Persian Empire at this point was so complete that the known world of the ancient Near East was essentially under a one world government. How do you think that went? That never goes well. It was characterized by oppression, by injustice worldwide. If the Persian Empire decided to just wipe out a whole people, there was nobody to hold them accountable. And so for that reason, the earth being at rest was not good. There was a second reason that the earth being at rest was not good. The Israelite exiles had been sent back, but they were still under the foot of Persia. They were, they were under this oppression, and they had stiff opposition also by the surrounding peoples to rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. See also the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what those books are about, is that opposition. And so the angels are basically reporting the world is at peace because of the oppressive power of Persia. But God's people are not at rest. They've not settled back home. They're not safe. They're not okay. And now the angel of the Lord, physically there outside Jerusalem in this vision, he appeals to his heavenly father. And now we see how fervent the intercession of Christ is. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 12. 
Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? Little sidebar here. This is a huge contribution to our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. We see God in the flesh, the angel of the Lord, making an appeal to God in heaven, his heavenly father. And his appeal is emotional. It's weighty. It's heartfelt. He asks, O Yahweh of hosts, meaning God of all the angels, How long? Now, if you've read the book of Psalms at all, you've seen that question. How long, O Lord? It's a cry of lament. It's a cry of sadness. It's it's wailing in anguish. Israel is in desperate need of the angel of the Lord to go to God on her behalf. And so the angel of the Lord beseeches God fervently. And, And listen, just to be clear, this question is not a request for information. He's not saying, hey, uh, Lord, just let me, clue me in here on the timetable. That's not what he's asking. How long is meaning it's been enough. How long before you move, before you act? The angel of the Lord is sovereign God. He knows all things. Instead, what he's doing is giving voice to the cry of a nation. They don't know how long. He does, but he's representing her. He's speaking for her. And what a spokesman. Listen, if you had a choice to speak to God On your own behalf or to have Jesus Christ speak to the Father on your behalf. We'll take Christ any day. Doesn't this help you understand what Christ is doing for you right now? For you who know Christ? Again, Hebrews 7.25. Christ always lives to make intercession. Meaning his intercession never stops. It's continual that the promise Jesus made in John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That, that promise is being accomplished right now, every moment, every moment. And I don't know what the words of Christ are for intercession. We're not told that. But here, if maybe we can take a, an educated guess Maybe the words on our behalf would be something along the lines of, Oh, Lord of hosts, how long before you bring your church home? How long before you redeem all of the elect? He's keeping this promise continually. The grace of God continuing day and night as Jesus prays for you and for me with fervency. Christ's intercession is fervent. We get another insight into the intercession of Christ. Christ's intercession is effective. It is effective. Verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry by the little, they furthered the disaster. So the Lord answers, there seems to be now a very clear distinction between the angel of the Lord and the Lord. Again, the distinction of the Trinity, three persons, one God. And this answer from God is conveying comfort and hope. I love this phrase, the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. It's not a neutral answer. It's not a static answer. There's passion, there's fire, there's joy in God's covenant commitment to Israel. He says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. There's not this sense of, oh, well, I guess I've got to keep my promises. No, he's jealous and he's exceedingly jealous. And you see this also in contrast to his exceeding jealousy and love for Israel. 
He says he's exceedingly angry with the nations who have oppressed her. And yes, God raised up the nations which have disciplined Israel. See also Isaiah chapter 10. But they genuinely also acted in pride and arrogance and in cruelty. And so though he sovereignly raised them up, he will then sovereignly crush them for messing with his nation. And now God's answer to the intercession of the angel of the Lord includes six blessings which will come upon Israel. Six blessings. I'll read verses 16 and 17 to you first and then we'll just list these blessings. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So what are the six blessings? We can just make a short list. The first blessing, God's presence. God's presence. He says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Why is this so important? The book of Ezekiel records a terrible day. Ezekiel 10 and 11 records the day that the glory of God lifted and departed from Israel, departed from Jerusalem. But now the presence of God will return. The second blessing, the rebuilt temple. The rebuilt temple, my house shall be built in it. The rebuilt temple, what does this mean? This is a good thing. It means that God is reestablishing fellowship. He's reestablishing his relationship. He's reestablishing worship. And they'll be back to the old days where the people worshiped God in their city, in their own temple. There's God's presence. There's the rebuilt temple. The third blessing, the rebuilt city. The rebuilt city, the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. What is a measuring line? It's a measuring tape. Just a really big one. This is surveying equipment. It's what we're talking about here. This is God reestablishing protection and a home. And listen, all through the Bible, the promise of a protected city is so important. When you live in the ancient Near East and you don't live inside walls, you better have an army. But to be inside a protected city that is symbolic of of the ultimate protection and care. Even Abraham has said in the book of Hebrews that Abraham looked to a heavenly, what? City. In our sinful world, a city is a symbol of crime and degradation and poverty and it only gets worse. In the heavenly realm, the city is the opposite. It is a symbol of protection. It is a symbol of being safe. There's the blessing of God's presence, the rebuilt temple, the rebuilt city. Fourth blessing, a robust economy, a robust economy. He says, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. God is reestablishing his blessing on his people. There's a fifth blessing. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will be comforted. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will be comforted. I I don't know if it's possible to fully get inside the mind of a Jew even today who understands and grasps the history that for 3,500 years they've had very, very few eras in which they're actually safe. And this certainly isn't one of them. And so I don't know if we can fully grasp that, but to live in Jerusalem as a comforted and safe Jew, this is a blessing. The Lord will again comfort Zion. This is the soothing of God's people. And then one more blessing, God's sovereign love will rest on them. God's sovereign love will rest on them at the end of verse 17. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. 
God is reaffirming, if we could put it this way, once elected, always elected. He's always chosen them, and they remain chosen. I don't know about you, but when I read the answer of the Lord to the prayer of the angel of the Lord, I get this sense that there's great joy. There's not hesitation. There, there's overabundance of, of blessing and joy. And this is so important for us because our understanding of the Heavenly Father's response to the intercession of the Son needs to be accurate. It needs to be precise. And from this exchange, we can understand that the Father's response to the Son's prayers for your continued forgiveness, your continued salvation, his response is one of delighting in you, of loving you, of a jealousy for you. Let me put it this way. God the Father doesn't somehow reluctantly receive the intercession of the Son. God the Father doesn't say, well, if you must let them into heaven, I guess we will. No, he's enthusiastically answering these prayers and he relishes your salvation. Christ's intercession is fervent. It's effective. Here's a third way to understand Christ's intercession. Christ's intercession is unmerited. It is unmerited. This takes us to another scene, another vision of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 3. It might just be across the page for you in in your Bible there, but turn to Zechariah 3. And now we're going to get a glimpse behind the scenes of the spiritual battle which rages, by the way, against you as well in the spiritual, spiritual invisible realm. The high priest of God is now in Jerusalem and he has a problem. His name is Joshua and he's a sinner. And the question here is, how can a condemned sinner stand as the high priest of God? Zechariah 3 verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is what Revelation 12 says is happening right now at this moment. Revelation 12, verse 10 says that Satan accuses Christians, quote, day and night before our God. Why is it that Christ, our advocate, is interceding as he ever lives to intercede? Because what gives us comfort and joy is the fact that while Satan accuses us, Christ continues to intercede, continues to be our advocate. Now, Satan is a liar, but he doesn't have to lie about you. All he has to do is tell the truth about you. All he has to do is list your sins We are sinners. But Christ tells the redemptive truth about you. The redemptive truth is that he was made sin on our behalf that we might receive the righteousness of God, that our sin debt has been paid in full at the cross. And so you you have this scene of conflict. I mean, I can't imagine being Joshua, the high priest, physically standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan there accusing Joshua to the angel of the Lord, telling the truth about him. You know what he said to his wife last night? You know how, he's, how he uh, abused his kids? You remember how, what he did this? You remember what he did when he was six? And just continually, continually, can you imagine all of your sins being listed, listed, listed? And Satan is accusing Joshua to the angel of the Lord. By the way, affirming once again that the angel of the Lord is God. Now, similar to chapter 1, verse 2 will say simply that the, that the Lord answered, but in this case, it must be the angel of the Lord answering because he is the one that Satan is addressing. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, meaning the angel of the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
Oh, here's what's going on. Why is Satan messing with Joshua? Because Joshua is the high priest who represents the whole nation. And so Satan's going after the whole nation. He's, he's attacking her. Maybe he said something like, Joshua is the high priest. This is the best guy you have. This is the best of the best. Let me tell you about him. But did you notice the basis upon which the angel of the Lord builds his defense of Joshua, builds his defense of Israel? The basis is the doctrine of election. The choice of God is the central argument. This is a God-central argument, not a, not a Jerusalem-centered argument, not man-centered. Jerusalem at this time, remember, it's a wreck. It's destroyed. It's a pile of rocks. And yet God says, I chose her. I have plucked her out of the fire. The intercession of Christ on your behalf is based on the electing will of God. There's no, well, look how well-behaved he is right now. No. Instead, the basis for the intercession of Christ, Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. All that Satan wants to say, Christ can answer by saying, I've already chosen him to be holy, to be blameless. That's the basis of the intercession of Christ. God the Father already chose you. Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. So if I could put it this way, Satan can blather on all he likes, but your sins are still forgiven, no matter what he says. Christ's intercession is fervent. It's effective. It's unmerited. There's a fourth way we can understand Christ's intercession. Christ's intercession is cleansing. It's cleansing. Chapter 3, verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The garments Joshua has on are disgusting. They're filthy. They're indicative of his sin. And he personally can't do anything about this. And so the angel of the Lord steps in and listen, if there is ever any doubt that the angel of the Lord is God himself, verse four, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by The angel of the Lord has forgiven the sin of Joshua, has clothed him in righteousness. A cleansing from sin has now taken place. I don't know about you, but this makes me think of Mark chapter 2 when Jesus was in Capernaum. You don't have to turn there. You know the story. He was preaching in a crowded house and some men carrying the paralyzed friend lowered this friend, lowered the man through a hole they made in the roof so that he could access Jesus And what did Jesus say to him? Sons, your sins are what? Son, your sins are what? Forgiven. Oh, yes. Then as a side note, since some of the religious elite were thinking to themselves, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? To prove he had the authority to forgive sins, Jesus then healed the man and he took up his pallet and went home. Physically healed, but much more importantly, cleansed of his sin. One of the final pleas in the Bible to come to God for forgiveness is just seven verses from the very end. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. The work of 
Christ on the cross has enabled you and me to receive the robes of the righteousness of God himself, completely cleansed. The angel of the Lord says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. We understand this from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ's intercession is fervent. It is effective. It is unmerited. It's cleansing. There's a fifth way to understand his intercession. Christ's intercession is sacrificial. It is sacrificial. We've already said openly and we understand that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is that which enables you to be cleansed of sin, to be washed, to receive the robes of righteousness, as it were. But even here, the angel of the Lord is going to promise this coming sacrifice. And now this gets even more familiar to us. Verse 6 of chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. That's the the command to be a good high priest. But now we get to the part that's more relevant to us at this moment. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch for behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua A single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. We have three titles here. In the presence of witnesses, the men around Joshua, probably the lower priests, the angel of the Lord makes a a promise given from the Father. Sin will be cleansed fully and finally by the coming Messiah who is named with three titles. He is named my servant. Now what does that remind you of? Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, Joshua the high priest knew the book of Isaiah, which had been written 180 years earlier. And when the angel of the Lord says, my servant is coming, Joshua would know the sacrifice of Messiah is coming. He also calls him the branch. This ties strongly, of course, to several places in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, he's sovereign, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The branch, of course, is Jesus Christ coming, humanly speaking, from Jesse through David. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so the angel of the Lord tells Joshua, the high priest, I'm bringing my servant, I'm bringing the branch, and for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, so he's called the stone as well. This may be the most familiar to you, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the what? The cornerstone. Jesus himself identified himself as the cornerstone. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And here in Zechariah 3, this stone is said to have seven eyes. What does that mean? It means the stone is all-seeing, all-knowing. He is God in the flesh. So the angel of the Lord is giving the message of the future sacrificial work of the servant, the branch, and the stone. And did you catch the irony here? Who is speaking? The servant, the branch, and the stone. He is the one who speaks. Christ's intercession is fervent, effective, unmerited, cleansing, sacrificial. One more. Christ's intercession is all-encompassing. It is all-encompassing. Salvation in Christ is not something which simply happens now. It's something that must be finished, must be consummated in a glorious eternal future guaranteed by God. And the angel of the Lord makes this promise here as well. The end of verse 9. At the very end, And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. First of all, he will remove sin in a single day. Now, some think this is referring to the day of the crucifixion of Christ, but that's not the context here. The context, Jesus has already come as the suffering servant. He already talked about that. Verse 10 says, in that day, meaning at the same time, peace will reign in the land. Neighbors will be fellowshipping with one another in the prosperity of a kingdom run by and protected by Christ What a glorious day this will be. Do you want to come to my house to enjoy the provision of our Messiah? Or shall I come to your house tonight to enjoy the provision of our Messiah? Shall we come to my house to look at the riches and the wealth that God has given me? Or shall I go to your house to see the wealth and the riches that God has given you? And that'll be every day. A glorious future. And it's at this time that the merits of the death of Christ will be applied fully to Israel, made up of all the Jews who will trust Christ to be saved. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says that in that day they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn, means they will repent. Christ is interceding for you right now. I don't know if we can fully wrap our minds around that, that at this very moment, Christ is naming your name to the Father. Every moment. 
And he's interceding to get you all the way to the consummation of your salvation the day you enter into the presence of God. John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The intercession of Christ is so certain, it is so perfect, it is so real, that there is a place in heaven with your name on it already. And listen, if Christ's intercession is all-encompassing, if he's guaranteeing a future for Israel and all who would believe on Christ, you remember the six blessings back in chapter 1? It means that those six blessings may have a longer view which go beyond just the return of Israel from exile. So let's find out. Turn back to Zechariah 1, verses 16 and 17, just to review. Zechariah 1, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So let's test according to other scriptures. God's presence, the first promise, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Ezekiel 43.5 says that the glory of God will return. The very last verse of of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48.35 says that Jerusalem will have a nickname and the nickname is the Lord is there. Why will Jerusalem have the nickname the Lord is there? Because Jesus Christ in the flesh will be reigning there. How about the blessing of the rebuilt temple? My house shall be built in it. All of Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48. All those chapters outline the rebuilding of a massive, beautiful temple. The details are so precise that you could make a blueprint from it today. The rebuilt temple. How about the blessing of the rebuilt city? The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. We actually know precisely what the measuring line is. Jeremiah 31, 38 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. And Ezekiel 48, 35, again, the last verse of Ezekiel says that the city proper will be 18,000 cubits around, about five miles in its circumference, not including all the surrounding towns and villages. We know exactly how big the city will be. How about the blessing of a robust economy? My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 4. It's a long passage. I'm just going to kind of hop through it here. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. This is the return of all Israel to the actual land. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So what does this mean? This means that at the beginning of the reign of Christ on earth, when all the the saved Jews have now returned to Israel and they look out and hey, what's that on the the Mediterranean there? It looks like a lot of ships. And they began to dock and they began unloading wealth and prosperity being brought to them. A multitude of camels shall shall cover you. That's goods being brought over land. They shall bring gold and frankincense and good news and the praises of the Lord. Down further in the passage, the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God. Oh, listen to this picture. 
At the beginning of the reign of Christ from all over the world, Jews are being returned by Gentiles, bringing them home and saying, just in case you have needs, here's a pile of gold to make sure you have enough for the next thousand years. A robust economy. How about the fifth blessing? The inhabitants of Jerusalem will be comforted. The Lord will again comfort Zion. Look in Zechariah chapter 2. Same page probably for you. Verse 10. Zechariah 2 verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Why will they be comforted? Because the angel of the Lord, no longer known as the angel of the Lord, but as King Jesus, will be there with them, there with us. How about the sixth blessing? Will it hold true? God's sovereign love will rest on them. It says at the end of verse 17 in chapter 1, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Do you know when the scattering of Israel was predicted? It was actually predicted before they were even formed as a nation in their own land. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Moses is telling Israel, who hasn't even settled in Israel yet, the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And Isaiah 14, 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. I love the study of Israel. I think if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that because what God does with Israel, he does with me. And he is so, so faithful. And we get to get in on the coattails of this blessing. So what does the intercession of Christ do? We may enter the kingdom because of the work of Christ on the cross. We're guaranteed to enter the kingdom because of the intercession of Christ. What's left now? Well, all that's left now is to look to the coming of Christ and take a wild guess what the last appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament will be about. We'll see next time. But we'll be in the last book of the Old Testament And what we're going to see is that the final legacy of the angel of the Lord is to say, I'm coming. What an incredible journey that he has given us in the Old Testament. We'll culminate that in two weeks. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had over these last weeks, all the way since before Christmas, to look at the angel of the Lord. It's always with a little grief and sadness that we approach an end of a series, but In a couple of weeks, Lord, I pray that we are blessed by Malachi 3 and 4 when we see the messenger of the covenant, Christ himself, who will come and will unite mankind with God through the forgiveness of sin available through the cross. Now, Lord, we turn our hearts and our minds toward Holy Week. I pray, Lord, that this coming week would not be just a normal, regular week with all the difficulties and problems and challenges that we have. But I pray that we would begin to prepare our hearts and our minds, our souls 
for Friday evening, for our Good Friday service, Lord, where we will contemplate the death of our Savior, the fact that he died a real death, he bled real blood, he cried out in anguish, and he breathed his last so that we might have eternal life with you. I pray you would turn our hearts toward the cross. And then, Lord, I pray that you would bolster our joy and our confidence in you as we look to Resurrection Sunday. And we remember that we do not serve a God who is in a grave. We serve a God who even now intercedes on our behalf. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, who speaks to you every moment of every day, keeping us safe in the palm of his hand. We are so thankful, and we thank you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.